0: Psalm. Did we do the video? Okay. Psalm 16. A miktum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion. In my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word through the prophet David. And So Lord, let us, let us sense Let us resonate with the joy, the security, the refuge that the King David felt. We're desperate. We're desperate children of yours in here who need this. we thank you for the power of your spirit. In the unfolding of your holy word, be present, be working to the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. To be called to faith in Christ To be placed into his family. To be called out of darkness in this world and to walk in the light in communion with his people is the greatest mode of living possible. This is what David's given us. Now now think about this. I, I think we would all agree that to raise children in an intact, loving, safe, fairly functional family, in other words, to shelter them as they're growing before you slowly release them, to to give them refuge and shelter from the storms of the world, that is a blessing to, to the child. In a sense, we're all children now in this great massive world with the realities of evil and sin and the inevitability of death. And in that context, David views the sheltered life in Yahweh as something that is good in and of it. Self. So if you have a yearning for a safe place, if you have a yearning for refuge, shelter in your own life, if you have this desire for contentment and happiness, don't ever think that that, is bad. David promotes it. We all have troubles, we all have pleasant, unpleasant storms we go through in life, and David certainly had his share of them. Actually, most of his songs are about that. But here this morning in Psalm 16, this is a restful song. Here David sits back and he reflects on what protects him. On what grounds him in life. Look at verse 1 as he begins it. Essentially saying, preserve me. In other words, watch over me. Keep me safe. O oh God, for or because in You I take refuge. Refuge, refuge means I take shelter. It, it means protection from danger. And David thus is commending such a life to all of us. And so, from verse 2 on, He unfolds this. And so let's slowly work our way through this life of refuge, safety, protection in Yahweh. First thing he lets us know is that to have this, we must yield our lives to God. Verse 2. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I say, in other words, to the Creator whose name is Yahweh, you are my Hebrew Adonai, my Lord, my my boss, my master, my sovereign. Who is over me. That's one of the main things right there. That the Holy Spirit awakens in the soul. Of a person who is now born again. It's one of the evidences of new birth. You're my Lord. And then they come to realize the next statement David made. I have no good apart from you, and that is a joyful reality to the saved. Now, real quickly, that last that second line in in the Hebrew text, it's a little tricky because if you to translate it just very very literally or woodenly, it says essentially my good. Not beyond you. Okay, so, so the question, wait, wait, wait. So what does, what does he mean? Does he mean that any good that I have, like spouse and children and a car or a horse or a house, any good I have, I only have it because of you. There's no good I have apart from, apart from you. That's essentially how the NIV interprets it. Possible. But I don't think that's what David means. I think he means here, God is the good. In other words, the spouse and the kids and the house and the car and the horse or the, all, and the food, they're good. But if I don't have you, God... It's all for nothing. In that sense, it. it ain't good. If I have you, I have everything I need. Paul puts that same thing this way in the New Testament, in Philippians 3. Indeed, I consider, I count everything. All those basics of life the good of life his 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 religiosity or anything he's accomplished in life i consider all of it is loss because of something the the surpassing value good to him of 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 what relationship of knowing not about but knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so that submission then that David gives us, it leads then to the reality of what he says next. Verse 3. And as for the saints in the land, those other People called out of the world to you, Yahweh. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now. David, I, I know the way they, you know, in the, in, in the interpretation they did with the quotes. But no, no, David's still speaking to the Lord here. And because of his affection, in other words, therefore, because of his reliance upon the Lord, his commitment to the Lord, it overflows in a love or affinity or a delight in other people who are taking refuge in Yahweh, in Jesus. The psalm assumes that if you delight in God, you also delight in His people. And that kind of assumption just flows off the lips of Paul through his pen. Just one, for instance, Colossians 1. And he hasn't met them, but he knows this is true. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of what? That, that vertical that hope laid up for you in heaven produces that. In other words, the vertical, that intimate to know you overflows in the horizontal. That's at the essence and the core of what a Christian is. It's why the Apostle John could make such stunning and sweeping statements. Like, whoever says that he's in the light and hates the saints, hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now for David or any of us, it doesn't mean Oh, that always works itself out easily. It doesn't mean there are no conflicts within the body of Christ. But it means deep down there's a real affinity, there's a real care, there's a real connection. There's, there, 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 there's a real bond of love. I mean, look, just like families, right? Parents and children and siblings and aunts and uncles. and Oh boy, can we all fight and bicker and that's, that's life. But I'll tell you what, don't you come against my loved one from the outside. That person's life and what happens to them and their funeral and their death affects me more than others because there's a bond. This is at the core of what he's, he's, he's talking about. Oh, Yahweh. Oh, and the saints in the land, in them is my delight. And so like David, true Christians have a Holy Spirit-produced affinity with fellow travelers in this earth who are finding their refuge in Yahweh, in the Lord Jesus. And then David shows us That from there now, these kinds of people, David, the saints, what do they do? They separate themselves from the godless in the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. That's verse 4, look. The sorrows... Of those who run after another, God shall multiply their worship, their drink offerings, blood. I will not pour out or take their names Baal, the Asteriths, gods of the Philistines. I will not take their names, and pray to them on my lips. So David rejects paganism. He rejects the gods and the ideologies that the world produces. He won't sacrifice to them. He won't pray to them, have their names upon his lips. Commitment to the Lord and to His people in verses 2 and 3, it means also Rejecting, rejecting the world's worship, the world's worldviews, the world's training and discipleship and indoctrination. It means in our day, a turning away from the predominant culture of religious pluralism, of relativism, of godless secularism, which is almost now synonymous with the public educational systems. So in other words, David is clear. Beware, and if you know your Bible and you know your Old Testament, you know the history of Israel, it was always the problem with the evil going on in them. Beware of syncretism. Beware of Baal worship infiltrating Yahweh worship. Beware of LGBTQ wokeism, social justice doctrine infiltrating the church. Then in verses 5 to 7, David explains that submission to God and love for his people and separation from the godlessness of the world... Is because why, David? Why do you do that? Well, because I'm supposed to. It's, It's not what he said. No, it's not merely that. It's because true contentment is found in being satisfied with the Lord. And so the way he does, see, the most basic need in life is what provision, daily bread, your food. And you drink. And of course you shelter, which is the point of this whole thing. And what David does, he takes that that, that basic, universal, human, biological experience of food and water and relates it to his non-material, spiritual experience with Yahweh. Verse 5. The Lord... Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. I would starve to death or die of thirst, O Lord, if I did not feed upon you daily. And then he switches the word picture. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So those words, lot, lines, or measuring lines inheritance, possessions, those terms are the terms used in connection with Israel coming into the land of Canaan and the land being divided up among the tribes. And that's what David has in mind as he applies it to his own life experience. And what he's saying is, I acknowledge the Lord's sovereign providence over my life and circumstances. You have measured out my life, my lot. My circumstances. You've ordered it. You're in control of it. You've settled it. The good, pleasant, the unpleasant, the trials. I'm satisfied with you, O Lord. You hold my lot. You have me carved into the palm of your hand even in the midst of this trial. It's like what Jesus said. They come back from the store. He's done with the woman at the well. I'm fine. I've eaten. Where'd you get food? (laughs) I have food that you don't know of. That's what David's talking about. You're my portion. You're my cup. And and he unfolds, how does that work for you, David? That's what he goes on to share. That, that that contentment satisfied in you. It comes from the Lord's direction to him. It comes from the Lord's instructions to him. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So, how does Yahweh give David counsel? It's through something that Yahweh had written down long before David was born. The Torah. The law. The scripture. His written word. Remember we started this series on Psalms with Psalm 1 and it kicked off this way, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. There's the separation from the world. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day day. And night. Or Psalm 107.11. Listen to it. For they had rebelled against the words of God. And spurned the, and here's the word, counsel of the Most High. David's counsel is at the core through the written word of God. And then... In the night also my heart instructs me, I'm pretty sure that that, that what David is driving at there is that the scriptures get into his head, into his meditations, into his heart. They spill over in the night times as things quiet down before sleep. And he lay down meditating on the word. David said it this way in Psalm 63, verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Throughout the night. So literally now here in our text in verse 7. Even, this is how he says it, technically. Technically. Even in the night times, my kidneys instruct me. Now, obviously, he does not mean that his kidneys are teachers who give lectures to him. It is it's his way, like we all use metaphorical language, of referring to his guts, to, to deep down, in other words, my conscience instructs me, My, my deepest thoughts. And isn't that the experience of all of us who are Christians? The Lord counsels us, teaches us, turns us, convicts us through our internalizing of His Word. Of the scripture, as we slowly read it and think about it, and chew on it, and ponder it and memorize it, and, and, and especially as we then reflect, ooh, on the day that just we just lived, and where we screwed up, or where the Lord blessed and you lay at night and comes back. Blessings of his beauty to you. And of the warnings that come up within you before you start snoring. What David is actually doing here, though, with all that now, he's praising God. He's saying, that's my life. And God, I, I, I praise you for such a life. Because he's satisfied with the Lord. Who gloriously orders the affairs and the boundaries of his life. And provides all the direction and instruction on how to live. It's what he needs. And so he exclaims in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my kidneys instruct me. And so this... Commitment that David recommends to us in verses 2 to 4, which brings the contentment of verses 5 to 7. It breeds a confidence in dealing with life and death. That's verses 8 to 11. In verse 8 he begins this way, I have set the Lord, Yahweh, always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He is saying, I live day after day practicing the presence of Yahweh. I live in His presence. He's right here, right now, always. He puts the first thing. Now, very, the, very, the very significant theologian in American history, Charles Hodge, throughout the 1800s professor at Princeton, he put it this way. As far back as I can remember, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking Him for everything I wanted. If I lost a book or any of my playthings, I prayed that I might find it. I prayed walking along the streets. I prayed in school. I prayed out of school, whether playing or studying. And here's the key. I did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule. Seemed natural. I thought of God as an ever present being full of kindness and love who would not be offended if children talked to him. That's the childlike faith Jesus commends to us. Become. Like little children. And the reason David lives that way is because he's persuaded of the Lord's nearness to him. I have said, he purposely does this, the Lord always right there in my presence before me. Why? Why? Because he is at my right. And because of that, I will never be shaken. I come near to God, and He is near to me. Therefore, I will never be shaken. What's that, David? That's what he goes on to explain in verses 9 to 11. This nearness... It brings confidence to not be shaken in the face of life and in the face of death itself. Let's read it. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shill. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore restate it david is saying i have this unrelenting pursuit of god in spite of death because there is an unending everlasting pleasures there in God's presence for me, for the saints. Verse nine again. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my, my flesh also dwells secure. He says, This security that I get from Yahweh covers my body, my flesh, my physical, biological being, verse 9. Now notice that verse 10 is the reason for that statement of verse 9. That's why verse 10 begins with the word for. Meaning, because the the reason my flesh dwells secure is because of verse 10. For you will not abandon my life, soul, to Sheol, which means the place of the dead. You won't abandon me there. Nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. So David is somehow confident that that even though he will die, and he will be in a disembodied state, he will not Forever be abandoned there. Now, that's amazing. Now, what I got to do here's the second sermon. <laughs> and that is this we got to step back for a moment. We got to recognize that the apostles, Peter and Paul, both do an exposition of this text. They they both quote Psalm 16 and particularly verse 10 here. And they say that it's not merely about David. But they say it is referring To Jesus. Particularly, it's referring to Jesus' bodily resurrection. Paul does this in Acts 13. Peter does it in Acts 2. Turn to Acts 2. And let's hear this portion of Peter's first recorded sermon. I'm going to start with verse 24. Pick up in the middle of it. Here's Peter to the masses of fellow Jews. And God raised Him, that is Jesus, up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why? Because David says concerning Him in Psalm 16. And then he goes on to quote it. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Sheol, place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And here comes his commentary. Brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. That He was not abandoned to Sheol. Nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we are all Eyewitnesses. Now, here's a question. It's not a bad question. It's okay to think. Were these apostles, Peter and Paul, just butchering the text? Were they doing eisegesis instead of exegesis? I said, were they reading into the text that something that's clearly not there? Or were they reading the text and bringing out what is there? Okay. There's, they were clearly doing exegesis. This is not a butchering of the text. And just stay right there in in, in Acts 2 with Peter for a moment. And notice Peter, he, he understands the interpretive difficulties of Psalm 16 because he says essentially this If Psalm 16, verse 10, refers to King David himself, then it is not true. Because David died and his body rotted and decayed in a tomb. And it's still there with us today, at least in dust form. And so Peter begins his, his exegesis with the point that at least verse 10 of Psalm 16 cannot be referring to David himself. And what Peter is showing us as a whole is this. And this is true with so much of David's songs as a prophet. And David being David. And that is this. When David is often writing, be careful not to only think it's David he's talking about. Or David alone. It is David! But it's more than David. It's David's dynasty. Because the Lord swore with an oath that He would set one of David's descendants on the throne. In other words, like the, the Scriptures talk about Abraham long before they're born, but that person was in Abraham's loins. So was Jesus in David's loins. He was wrapped up with King David in the covenantal promise. And since David was also a prophet, he predicted the resurrection of his descendant, the anointed one, the Messiah. And that's why in interpreting Psalm 16, verse 10, Peter says, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his body, flesh, see corruption. That's pretty solid interpretation. It's a good commentary. I just want to ask this other question, though. But apart from the way Peter then does that, and he never had Peter, is there anything in Psalm 16 that would lead to such a conclusion? And the answer is yes, yes. And it's kind of twofold. Here's the first part of the twofold. See, it's called Hebrew poetry, which is, there's a lot of it in, in the Old Testament. All the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. Let me pause. It's not English poetry. We have our own rules in traditional English Poetry, and there's different kinds of rules, and there's a lot of rhyme in English poetry that not in Hebrew poetry, it's not about rhyme at all. So, let, let me uh, so, let me, the proverbs are poetry, Job is poetry, okay, in the Old Testament as opposed to prose or law, okay. Now, within hebrew poetry in there's different kinds because they're going this 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 poem or this song is going by this kind of rule and another one's going by another so let me just give it taste to not overwhelm you but for instance there's what you call a parallelism okay but there's synonymous parallelism or different, there is antithetical parallelism you'll see in in what, what When you read your English Bible and you start to think about it, you say, oh, that's what's happening here when I read this psalm. So, for instance, synonymous in parallelism means, as, as it's flowing down and it'll do this pattern throughout a song or something, it'll be the first line will say something, and then the next line will say the same thing, but in different words. It's synonymous. I mean... It repeats it, but in different words. Give you one taste. Psalm 12, verse 2. This is synonymous parallelism. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Next line. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. He said the same thing with different words. Well, there's antithetical parallelism, which means, of course, you can probably figure it out. You say the first line, and then in the next line, you say the exact opposite, the antithesis, like Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Okay, now, having said that, here, here, here's, here's the rub now. This psalm is neither one of those. This is what you call additional or supplemental poetry. Where the flow throughout is in in, in one line you say something and then the next line you add something else. It's distinct from it. Not a repeat of it or the opposite. It's distinct from it. You add something else to it. So it's like, okay, not only is this but also this. Now, as we have been reading through Psalm 16, that is exactly what has been happening. Let me go back to verse 4, see if you can feel it. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. I won't even take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. Essentially saying, plus you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me, boundaries are in pleasant places. I said something else. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Not only that, in the night also my heart instructs me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Not only that, but even my flesh also dwells securely. So now watch. When we come to verse 10, it means David is not simply repeating himself in the second line of the verse, but he's saying something in addition to the first line. Verse 10, A, first line. For you will not Abandon my soul to Sheol. Okay, that's the one thing. Verse 10b. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. That's another thing. Now what? Now here's the second part of it. When you, if if you've been paying attention to the psalm, you notice it throughout. David's been using the first person singular throughout the psalm. And then, right there, in the middle of verse 10, is a switch. Just for you, you go back to verse 5 my chosen portion, my cup, my lot, my, or the lines for me. I have a beautiful inheritance. My heart instructs me. He is at my right hand, my heart, my whole being, my flesh. Now, verse 10a, for you will not abandon my soul to shield, then 10b the switch. You won't let your holy one see corruption. A bunch of mice bam, your holy one. And exegetically, that's easy just to read. Your holy one, someone related to, but distinct from David himself. And now, the beauty of a thousand years before Christ and as we internalize it and it's my wife's favorite is that Yahweh will never allow that person of verse 10b to see meaning experience corruption or decay in his body So Peter's interpretation is solid and consistent with Psalm 16 which should not be any surprise to any of us since we know where he got that. He had a great professor and particularly after that professor died and was raised from the dead, and for six weeks continually opened up the scriptures and pointed to himself in them, and he did point to Psalm 16. Guys, it's there. And so if God's Messiah did not have his butchered Bloody, heart-stopped, cold rigor mortis setting in, if he did not have that body go on to decay, but was resurrected to everlasting human life on the third day, then that's the hope that David speaks of for himself. And for all the saints. Because our bodies. Will die. And they will. Rot. And decay. If you just don't burn them up in the next few weeks. And we will be. In a disembodied state. But not. Forever. We won't be abandoned there. But the resurrected man, the Lord Jesus, whose body never decayed, will return and raise us to everlasting human, physical slash, other dimension life. And that's why Psalm 16 is a beautiful anthem for all lovers of Jesus. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, because you will not abandon my soul to shield to an disembodied state. Or let your Holy One, Jesus, see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures for ever and ever and ever. Lord, Holy Father, ever-present Spirit, let the hope of this gospel of Psalm 16 live through us, the saints, powerfully. Let that hope reign in our lives throughout this coming week and month and year to the glory of Jesus. Amen and amen. Let us stand.